Hello and welcome to episode 232 of Sun Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Shelton. Today on the podcast, we're getting our hands dirty with a little activism and our review of the eco-thriller How to Blow Up a Pipeline. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm good. Uh, you know, it's been an exciting time here. I feel like I'm like back in like April has been I am back in the groove of things. I was traveling a lot the last like February, March time period, but I feel like I've reset. I'm seeing like three or four movies in a weekend now again. And, you know, I'm just back in my rhythm, back on my schedule. And uh, yes, yeah, Scott, I'm thinking I'm back. I was going to say, are you yeah. thinking you're back? I'm I am, in fact, thinking I'm back. Um, so much so that I was thinking about seeing John Wick 4 again this weekend. That didn't happen. Uh, I saw <laughs> I saw the movie we said that we were going to talk about uh, this weekend instead during that time period in which I could have seen John Wick 4 again. Not that I regret it, but, you know, there's a reason why we're not talking about that movie. Um, because we found yeah. some better uh, gold to mine. Oil to drill? What's a good pun to say there? I think you nailed it there. I think you nailed it. Okay. Um, no, yeah, you're, you're right, Scott. You know, I guess we did say, if anyone actually listened all the way through to the end of the last episode, we did say that we were going to review Renfield instead, but uh, we decided to pivot. I, I feel like there are these movies like this movie we're going to be talking about today that kind of seem to slip through the cracks as as in, as far as the podcast is concerned. Like, sure. you know, maybe they come up in the, our best of the year or something episode, and then it's like, oh, wait a minute, I haven't sure. even heard about this movie. Um, but these are the types of movies that need talking about more again not that yeah. we're reaching some huge audience or anything but you know if you're following I mean, follow yeah. movies like everybody knows about renfield probably coming out this week. everybody knows about it and few people are going to see it i'd say yeah yeah so you probably haven't heard about this movie and you know i would i would love to raise awareness of it before it is you know december january and you know you haven't had it didn't have the opportunity to see it in theaters maybe if you, if you have that opportunity now like again it's probably not gonna be around too long but i was able to see it in my indie theater so you may still have a chance to but yeah yeah um, it, it played at tiff last year it was acquired by neon out of tiff and then it's getting a limited theatrical run it seems like obviously it's not making very much money at the box office but it's probably also not being released that wide either i, I can't imagine it would be, you know, it's got it's got neon, so it's got you know a good size indie studio there, but it's still very much a, an indie film. So it's also um, a, a probably the one of the most politically charged yes films that has and been released. And we will talk about that, obviously. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's impossible not to talk about this film and talk about its political uh, overtones. I can only think we call them undertones. God, I think we have to call them overtones. Definitely um, overtones. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and feels crazy. I mean, ne- I mean, neon is the kind of I know we're sort of jumping the shark a little bit. Neon is the kind of distributor who could acquire this, but even that feels kind of crazy that Neon acquired. Like, it just feels like so politically sensitive to touch this. Um, but I'm glad someone did. I don't know. I was super excited to have seen it in a theater at the very least. Yeah. Well, we're already, you know, dancing around it, Scott, so we might as well get into our film for today, which is sure. How to Blow Up a Pipeline, the second feature from director Daniel Goldhaber, co-written by Goldhaber and star Ariella Bearer. Bearer plays Zochi, a college dropout, disillusioned with what she sees as a societal unwillingness to think outside the box when fighting the burgeoning climate crisis. Meeting fellow radical thinker Sean, played by Marcus Scribner, at a college activist group, the two become friends and begin to form a plan that they believe will attack the forces contributing to the deteriorating environment head-on, blowing up a new oil pipeline in a remote portion of West Texas. Zochi and Sean endeavor to put together a team to accomplish this task, a team that eventually includes explosives expert Michael, played by Forrest Goodluck, Livewire petty criminals Logan and Rowan, played by Christine Forseth and Lucas Gage, embittered soon-to-be father Dwayne, played by Jake Weary, and Zoshi's terminally ill friend Theo, played by Sasha Lane, who in turn recruits her girlfriend Alicia, played by Jamie Lawson. What ensues in Goldhaber's film is a ticking clock thriller where the suspense is not only as to whether or not the team will get away with their radical task, but whether it will even matter in the ongoing climate war that remains at the heart of American political discourse. 
Scott, does how to blow up a pipeline succeed as both a genre exercise and a provocative statement on modern day activism? Or does it come across, as some have suggested, as a potentially dangerous piece of leftist propaganda? Yeah, I, you know, it's it's what an interesting question. I have not looked in too much to the discourse of whether this is leftist propaganda. I will say before I answer your question, one of the more fascinating elements of this, and, and Scott, maybe you're a little bit more knowed in these fields. How many films based on nonfiction have been adapted, like pure nonfiction? Have, I'm, talking, I'm not talking about like biographies of people, but like pure nonfiction have been adapted into movies. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. I'm trying to to think off the top of my head, but it would yeah. probably require some research there. Because the source material here is a nonfiction book written by Andreas Malm, which is basically a, I don't, it's not quite a manifesto, but I was yeah. looking into it afterwards. But it is this sort of history of climate activism and specifically advocating for the fact that more um, property destruction is a, it should be a more central role of environmental justice because the forces at work are so large that slow, slow moving change is not fast enough to make a difference. Um, and fascinating because I think it's does not seem on the page like it would be very easy to adapt something like that. That is a history of a movement right into something that is fiction that is narrative fiction and yet i think the film is incredibly successful with at least some elements of what it sets out to be feels like one of those kinds of films that would be so fascinating just to hear ariella bearer and daniel goldhalber talk about what their thoughts on not in terms of what the film means or whatever but just hear their perspective because it's one of the you you started talking about it before you introduced the film as you know there's these movies every year that sort of slip through the cracks. This film, not by subject matter, but you know, by the vague sort of overarching themes or maybe the political view of the themes, reminded me a lot of Emily the Criminal last year. Also because it's tense as hell. Yeah. Um, I think you know I can get into what whether I liked this movie more than that maybe because we didn't ever talk about Emily the Criminal really on the podcast except yeah. for in the in our top 10 because this is in your top 20 so i think we did briefly mention it mm. on the top 10 episode and the ago. awards yeah. and the awards yeah good call but this is one of the most tense 100 minute start to finish thrillers that i remember seeing in a while it is incredibly effective at building that tension holding your suspense is it effective in convincing me that you know property destruction is key for creating success i don't think any part of this film glorifies the notion of property destruction obviously it is it is recognizing that it is an option for people to pursue by just portraying it all in the film is it propaganda and saying people should do this i never felt in the movie that like the film itself was saying we all must go out and blow up a pipeline so in that sense i'm not sure it's propaganda because propaganda feels like it is this message at least when I think of what I think of propaganda, I think of something that is trying to indoctrinate people into believing a certain thing or to appeal to certain aspects of something that makes it more attractive. I don't really think too much of what they're doing in this movie seems very attractive to do. So I struggle with the notion that it's sort of leftist propaganda. Is it raising awareness that this is a potential avenue to combat, you know, environmental justice? Sure. I mean, in that sense, it definitely is because it's a film about a group of people blowing up a pipeline. But I didn't really get the sense of the, the sort of leftist propaganda angle. I just thought it was an incredibly compelling, tense thriller with some interesting characters in it, some of whom I thought were sympathetic and others I, I'm not as sure about. And I think that is intentional. I don't. I don't think it's trying to paint these people as heroes per se now you may leave the film thinking that these people stood up for something that was really important and you agree with them in that case they might be heroes to you but it didn't feel like they were sort of universalizing them as heroes i think there there's a few characters who are conflicted about what they're doing there's a few characters who don't really care about what they're doing but they're using it as a means to an end i think there's a lot of mixed motives going on here and i think to say that this film is pure oh like we should all go out and 
combat climate change by blowing up Exxon's pipelines or whatever is not really quite what the film is ultimately saying. At least I didn't interpret it that way. Um, but I, I love this film, Scott. This is probably my favorite film of the year so far. It was, like I already said, it was incredibly compelling. I thought the performances, almost top to bottom, were fantastic in this film. And I couldn't recommend this highly enough. I, you know, I, friend of the podcast, Jay, is coming up on every episode at this point. Uh, as he is an A-list subscriber now, I told him that he has to find time to go watch this movie in the next few weeks. And I would have, I mean, I just know that if he had to pay full price for the film, he probably wouldn't do it. But the fact that he's, it would be free. It's just a matter of his time. I feel like I could convince him to go watch this movie. Um, but we'll see. I'll report back on whether he goes and watches the film. Yeah. Again, they, we've talked about it before, but the AMC stubs can be a gateway into watching all types of stuff that, you know, wouldn't otherwise watch. But um, yeah, I hope, I hope a lot of people see this movie as long as, you know, you go into it with an open mind. Of course, like I said, there are some people out there who have, you know, resorted to calling it propaganda um, and things like that, which, you know, I don't know that that's completely unfair, but to your point, like, I don't know that it is necessarily saying that, you know, trying to mobilize the troops basically to, to, you know, do what the, the characters in this movie do. But I, I mean, it is, it is a one-sided movie. It is confrontational. It wants you to think long and hard about, activism in general and, and definitely activism on this particular issue. Um, and yeah, I think there's some incredibly sympathetic characters, which it portrays in the context yeah. of this, but I think there's others who are not sympathetic, like not as sympathetically portrayed, I think. Yes, I, I think that's true. But, you know, I do think, I do think you understand the reasons for the most part, why everyone is where they are. Um, the, the reason. Sure. I just don't think not yeah. everyone's motives are the same. I'd say. Sure. I, I think the movie's fantastic, Scott. Um, I, I, you know, again, I have complex feelings about it, which I like in a movie. I mean, that's that's one thing that I tr treasure in yeah. a movie experience when a movie can get me thinking. Because, yes, no, I, I don't feel like, um, you, you know, somebody I, I told you, Scott, at the end of this movie uh, in my theater, the credits hit and somebody goes, well, I'm sold. Or who else yeah. is sold, I think they said, or whatever. Yeah. I don't necessarily feel like that, right? I don't feel like I'm ready to go blow up a pipeline. Like, like this is necessarily a wise or moral course of action to be taking. I think it's it's pretty sociopathic if you watch this film and are like, yes, let's go do it right now. Like, that feels kind of crazy to me. You know? Yeah, yeah, no. But at the same time, the movie's agenda is persuasive. Like it, sure. it is. There is there is no denying it. The way that they choose to tell the story is persuasive. Yes, it is one sided. Like I said, I, I think totally. for, you know, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they really there's really one approach that they are advocating for in terms of you know we need to take this more seriously again. Not necessarily the specifics of blowing up a pipeline, but we need to take this more seriously and we need to think about think about other forms of activism because our are the current forms of activism running out. enough yes yeah. um and it is it is persuasive in that regard absolutely and i think because that is the point it's trying to make it's necessary for the film to be one-sided because it's not trying to portray the complexities of the debate right it is it on this issue it is saying the time the time for you know nuance and debate and all of that is is past like we are in a, a state of emergency like you know they said they literally say at the, at the end of the movie this was an act of self-defense um so you know there's there's a lot going on um the with the you know subtext of the movie which i appreciate um i think emily the criminal is a great comparison again these they are these sort of really gripping thrillers genre exercises but they also have something to say and something that feels important that feels of the current moment um absolutely um and so i think i you know this this niche is is something that's really striking a chord with me if you want to call it that um what who released uh emily the criminal what studio was that it wasn't neon was it no i can I look it up so. keep going uh, but anyway um yeah, I think the ensemble is really great in this movie. Like, I, I like the structure of, you know, we're going to start out in media race, so to speak. You know, we're going to throw you in the middle of them starting the, the actual construction of 
the explosives and arriving at their meeting point and everything. And then we're going to, over the course of the movie, individually reveal the backstories of each person and how they got to be here. It does lead to some sort of forced moments of like, you know, there are dramatic things that happen. And before you can see like what the full extent and consequences of those dramatic things are, it's like, we're going to cut right here. And now we're going to show you the backstory and like, you know, yeah, keep you in suspense for a little bit longer. It's a little bit artificial the way that they choose to do that. But from a storytelling um, perspective, I do think it's effective to, 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 you know, help us understand the characters again. By Early on, it felt more artificial, but I will say at, at the end, it becomes clear that it's very necessary. Otherwise, there are certain elements of the film which wouldn't be as suspenseful, I'd say. With that way, if you knew the true, ba- like if you knew yes. everyone's backstory to the fullest extent. Yes. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, in was- the end, I think it, I think it works. It's just like some of those like sort of winky winky moments where it's like, yeah, oh, we're gonna show you something, but not right now. Not mm-hmm. you know, we're gonna make you wait a few more minutes. Uh, yeah, Emily the Criminal was distributed by Vertical Entertainment and Roadside Attractions. Uh, sure, if you say so. Very, um, I mean, very small indie distributor. Yeah. But anyway, Scott, fantastic movie. I highly recommend going out to see it. It will provoke thoughts, but at the same time, it's also just a very entertaining watch. Like this movie is riveting. Like I did not want to get up from my seat, go to the bathroom at any point. Like it was, I was totally did not want to miss a second of this. It, it really pins you to your seat. Um, so let's talk about the cast, Scott. You know, uh, sure. it is, there's, really sort of eight people in the cast is the eight members of this team. Right. Um, and they include people who, you know, more familiar faces like Sasha Lane, like Lucas Gage, Christine for um, you know, or some of the more familiar faces here. And then you have people like, you know, Ariella bearer, who's the co-writer of the movie. You have Forrest. Good luck. Who plays Michael who stood out to you from, you know, either the familiar faces, the new faces, you know, you seem to indicate that the whole cast was pretty strong, you thought. Yeah, I, I found Forrest Goodluck to probably be one of the most compelling characters. I think yeah. he's one of the people who seems, um, frankly, probably the most aloof of any of the characters in, in, the, in the cast. When you're sort of being introduced to his character, you, you, it, it's not exactly his background as a surprise. It's not like... I think pretty early on you understand that he's pretty, um, you know, he feels pretty disconnected from wherever he was from. It seems clear earlier on that that he's from some sort of Native American um, community. And when you get his flashback, you see where he comes from. He feels, um, you know, just really like he doesn't know what to do. He's not sad. Like he's very disgruntled and dissatisfied with the way that his his community is interacting with the people who are digging for oil, who are building pipelines. And he's kind of the most, I think he's probably the person, what it feels like the most like tangible direct investment in what the group is doing. That's not to say that other people aren't invested in other ways that are very clear, but it feels like even when you take Sasha Lane's character who has leukemia, which feels like, I mean, at the very least is is implied that it is indirectly caused by all this pollution that that she has experienced in Long Beach, California. Yeah, and they say it like this this form of leukemia is for people who grew up near chemical plants, basically. Right, right, exactly. And you know, I don't know the meta I don't know the medical details behind that and if that's entirely true or if they are using a little bit of narrative massaging to say to sort of emphasize the point that they're making. But I think even more so than that, you sort of feel the real tangible effect of what's happening on Michael's life before West Texas. And I feel like that sort of soul almost blinkered focus on what is being what what they are trying to accomplish, like sort of just blind rage focus on what's right in front of him, I think makes for a really compelling character in, in this sort of not one dimensional narrative, but this narrative that is sort of driven by this very singular message that it's trying to convey. And I think Forrest Goodluck does a really great job showing that Michael doesn't really care about anyone else in this group at the co- like at the expense of the like the mission. Like he cares about that 
first and foremost and cares about nothing else more than that. And I just found it to be a very compelling character. Other than that, I think probably just because it's it's a very like it's a very strong comparison. I'm just I'm kind of a fan of Lucas Gage. I'm going to be honest. I really like him and and I feel like he's becoming more and more. He's having a lot of exposure right now. Obviously, he was in White Lotus season one in a minor role, but he was a main character in season four of you. And he's been in something else recently. I'm too, if I'm not mistaken. Um, maybe I'm forgetting. I think he's right in now. Euphoria. Yeah. Right. Wait, wait, he's in Euphoria. Oh yeah, right. He's Tyler. He's Tyler in Euphoria. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. That's a pretty. That that's a pretty minor role. Honest, yeah, he's. That's a pretty minor role. I think. I was thinking. Um, I was thinking of something else. I think, but that doesn't matter. Neither here nor there. He was in You season four most recently, but I just found his sort of oddball character. You know, he and and Kristen for Seth, Christine for Seth are this couple who's. I will say motives are not exactly don't exactly seem the same as everyone else's in the group and the sort of quirkiness and, and levity the character brings adds its own element of tension within the group that I appreciated. And I think that Lucas Gage sort of has this almost, I don't want I don't think he's starting to be typecast quite yet, but he has this sort of like aloof kind of rich privileged kid getting away with some shit um, sort of idea character down because that's kind of what he's playing in season four of you as well so i i enjoyed it he's sort of riding that high right now but honestly scott i could have i could have pointed to any of these people and probably created some argument for why they're one of the stronger characters but what what did you think did anyone else stand out for you yeah i mean you know i think you, you highlighted Forrest. good luck definitely um playing this really sort of intense character of michael yeah. you know this guy who is like he basically is starting fights with these like employees who have come from other states. It seems like to work on the, on the chemical on the plant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then he's like, you know, he's making these explosives in his garage, and that's kind of how it all starts. He's making like YouTube videos and stuff on how to how to build these explosives. Um, but he's just he's you know he. He, he obviously is the one who ends up designing like the big explosives to blow up the pipeline. And there's these scenes of him, like putting everything together and they're so tense, like, cause it's like, if he, you know, moves one thing the wrong way, but there's also a part of, part of you and part of the character. That's like, does he like have a death wish? Like maybe this guy doesn't care. Right. If he, you know, moves it a little bit and it blows up, like um, it really, it, it really makes things, even more tense than they already are. And I think it, you know, speaks to the effectiveness of the performance that he is. So, you know, I don't, I, chaotic maybe is the right word. Oh, but, sure. He's definitely yeah. chaotic. I definitely think he has a death wish a hundred percent. He does. He does not care whether he dies during this. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, which, which again creates an extra layer of tension there. So I thought he was strong. I haven't seen him in anything before. Um, but yeah, I liked everybody. I really liked our Ariella Bearer as well as sort of, you know, the leader of the group, so to speak, you know, the, you know, pre maybe the most passionate of like the environmental activists here. Um, because she seems to be also... the, orig the originator of the idea who's getting people sure. together, who's reaching out, things like that. We learn, you know, that her mother has passed away because um of a heat stroke basically a, an unexpected heat wave um is is what's what's said i believe um and and so you know she has a personal stake in the game kind of like everybody else um but yeah I, I liked her you know sort of passion and everything that she brought to the role um jake weary is also good you know somebody that um i wouldn't put him in the familiar face category he is in one of my favorite movies which is it follows um, but I'm not really sure how much other stuff he's been in. That's really the only thing I recognized him from. But um, he's in one of yeah, the Chicago also... shows on broadcast. Interestingly enough. Oh, OK. Yeah. Well, he's also good as sort of this like, I mean, he's not really a lone wolf type guy because he's married, but um, he does have that sort of vibe about him. Right. Like, you know, again, he's he's in the bar and drinking himself to death and everything with while waiting for the explosion to go off. And um, he's the one where it's, it's kind of like his purpose there seems a little bit like 
because he's he's like kind of the most outsider of all the group. He's the oldest one, probably. But he's the local. He like lives in this yes, area. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're interviewing him for this documentary. And, um, I interpreted his going to the bar and drinking himself silly as like an alibi to not be a part of what's going well, on. Well, yeah, I think they're all like creating alibis for themselves towards the end. Like that's that's part of the, the deal. But then obviously, you know, the the cop comes in and he kind of gives himself an extra task, I guess, right? Which is he he starts plugging the cop with alcohol so that, you know, he's not in any sort of condition. I mean, the guy about falls over going out to, you know, get in his car to, to do some investigation of the actual explosion. So, um, yeah, he, I think he everybody's got, really he got cop killed someone on the way to the, on the way to the scene. It's entirely possible. Uh, yeah, I think everyone in the ensemble is good. I think that's one of the reasons the movie works so well, because you understand who all of them are, what they're bringing to this, why they are invested in, this this task yes talk about the structure a little bit more scott you know again i i talked about it up front that basically we have you know we start off with them arriving at their meeting place we have sort of the story of the the explosion and everything leading up to that and the creation of that and then intercut with the backstories of all the different characters did you find this to be an effective way to tell the story um did you find all of the backstories you know were they were those segments you know put together well were they you know did they add something to each of the characters and your understanding of what brought them there like was that the best way to tell the story yeah i've thought a little bit about this because i I do hear what you're saying earlier on when you said that some of it feels a bit manufactured just from a structural perspective but I think it is a really effective way. I, I kind of feel like you wouldn't really understand the stakes. Like it, it's actually kind of nice to be invested in the characters already when you're learning about their backstories. So it's not like you're they're not yes, they are using the backstories to give you context and to give you more to get you more invested in these characters. But I kind of like that we were pretty much introduced to everyone before we got their backstory. Even the first backstory didn't pop up until we'd met the people a little bit. And I thought that was pretty effective because I think if, you, if this sort of cold opens and, and you sort of get this in a more chronological order, I think you wouldn't uh, be 100% sure quite what to make of some of the backstories. And the, one of the ones that sticks out in particular is sort of the way they set up Alicia, who is Theo's girlfriend in the movie. And I think if you were to point to sort of one character who I think feels deeply conflicted, about what the group is doing, it is Alicia. And the fact that you sort of get that character's POV, if not last, like like second to last, I think. It's I can't last, remember. Yeah. It's last. Okay, that's what I thought. I think that ultimately is really effective because I think it provides a pretty rich structure and you kind of under it and then provides better context as to why the dynamics of the group might be might seem a little bit weird considering all the like there's these core like four or five people who are pretty close with each other or three or four people. That's mainly Sochi, Theo, Sochi and Theo being the central two. And then Alicia through Theo and Sean through Sochi are sort of like the central group. And then you have Logan and Rowan who are their own couple. And then Michael and Dwayne as sort of like separate entities as well. Uh, Yeah. I I kind of sort of really did like the in media race Ellen to the film. It was structured well. I never thought the flashbacks were too long. I don't think they were perfect. I think that I might have changed some things. I might have reorganized the movie. I might have even made the movie more around Michael. I'm not sure I 100% agree that I have to think about that a little bit more because Sochi really sort of, like, the narrative really does sort of tendril out from from her. But I, I did ultimately really like this these choices, and I think that the last couple flashbacks that we get to get the context of the full context of these characters i think that was definitely the right time to sort of introduce the full context for their stories both narratively but also almost sort of character development wise and it gave me a lot more appreciation for jamie lawson's performance who's alicia in the film and a lot more appreciation for just how these different characters were interacting with each other and appreciated each other in that way and 
I guess if I had to point to one where, where again, it might be a little bit different is just some of these more peripheral characters. I'm thinking specifically Michael and Dwayne not being like the most perfectly timed. And that's why I I almost lean towards, okay, maybe we could have gotten more about them earlier because they are sort of separate. Like Rowan and Logan's stories are so separate where it kind of makes sense having the timing, especially the, the way that the timing is chosen to unfurl that story. Michael and and Dwayne are just a little bit different in that sense. And I think that the structure maybe doesn't benefit their characters as much, but it does, I think, play out pretty well for the rest of them. So overall good. I will say one thing that's not indirectly related to this is that if you want to figure out how to introduce your ensemble cast of characters in a really short period of time with a pretty effective intro, this film is like, king level at introducing eight characters in under five minutes yeah and movies don't know frankly movies usually do not know how to do that well yeah it's very efficient again something else i would say about emily the criminal and something that i think you know makes this takes this movie into the upper echelon um yeah i kind of you know uh said my piece earlier about i think some of the moments that it chooses to cut to the backstory are a little little cheesy um but they're cliffhangers. Yeah. Uh, but ultimately, I think it works. The only other, uh, you know, nitpick I might have is that it does feel a little bit like fortuitous the way that they meet. Like, so, for example, like Logan and Rowan, the way that they get involved is like Logan is just like in a bookstore or something um, and strikes up a conversation with Sean. Yeah. Like it, the way that it's portrayed, like it feels like it. Sean is way too quick to be like, hey, you want to join my, you know, plot to go blow up an oil pipeline? Do some pipeline super illegal to, stuff. To commit what many would call an act of terrorism with me? Like, yeah. it seems like there would have to be a little bit more built up there before. I know, do definitely agree with that. Comfortable doing that. But um, but yeah, no, I, I think, again, at the end of the day, it, it's, a, it's an efficient way to tell the story. Um even if there's a couple of things you can nitpick scott as far as the story goes you know we get to the third act and there are a couple sort of twists that that happen yeah. um first of all you know we get some reveals about logan and rowan again and um specifically that rowan kind of agrees to be an informant for the authorities um yeah, and then yeah. we see yeah exactly. we see that being uh playing out when she after after things have gone down and obviously we're talking spoilers at this point and logan's been shot there they escape to a motel and she leaves him there she goes out into the van and you know basically tells the fbi agents where zochi and theo are located um which is back at the the house where they originally all met um and Part of me was a, like a little bit confused for a second at this at this part. I mean, yeah, you're supposed Scott, to be, because because it's very clear that Logan knows that she's an informant earlier in the movie um, because they like get arrested together for doing some crime. Um, doing some and crime. I f- forget exactly what it was now, but um, I think they were they were vandalizing. They, they were doing some eco re- yeah. like climate justice related crime. Like mm-hmm. blow, they were trying to like blow up something small or something like that. I don't remember what it was. So I was just very confused. Like, why is she trying to like hide this from him? Like, why, you know, why did he get involved or whatever, knowing that she's informed? Well, it turns out it's all part of the plan, right? And that Zochi and um, Theo, you know, have voluntarily agreed that they're going to the give themselves up to protect everyone else. Theo, because she has this terminal illness, she's going to be passing away anyway soon Mm -hmm. zochi just because she's you know the most again passionate of all of them and feels that you know she can be an an example um and an inspiration hopefully to a martyr more or less a martyr a a martyr yeah um even you know again even going so far to make this video that is the very ending of the movie um Mm -hmm. where she is sort of giving her manifesto and confessing obviously to to the explosion um Scott, what did you think about sort of these reveals that happened? Did you think they were effective? Did the movie jump the shark a little bit? Or, you know, is it was it able to keep its narrative coherence? Yeah, I think 
I guess here, here's what I'll say about it. I found the narrative coherence compelling, if not a bit unrealistic. Like it feels like I, I just feel like you look at this crime that is ultimately committed and you're like, there is no way these two like college age women did this by themselves. It's just like one of those things where like it doesn't feel possible that they could have done this by themselves if you just look at it on the surface. And so in that sense, I'll take a step back and say, well, it's like kind of unrealistic. I, I like I know that technically they know Rowan was a part of it. Like the FBI yeah. knows that Rowan was a part right. of it. But like these three women, like, could they really have done this by themselves? If you think about the explosives they made or and whatnot. I mean, um, the barrels just carrying them around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I think that there's a, a bit of unrealism about that element of it. But from like a purely compelling narrative sense, especially when you think about what like what the film is, is very like the film is going to reach its conclusion and have the outcome the film wants to have, if that makes sense. And the film mm -hmm. wants the story to wrap up in this way. And I found that compelling. Like I found the choice to have this twist to sort of unveil parts that might have seemed mysterious earlier on in the film. Like why is like, what is Rowan up to when she's taking this photo of them rolling the barrel to mix the chemicals or whatever and sending it like we'd at that point in the film, we don't know who she's texting, it, texting. Yes. And later on, that becomes clear. It becomes clear that she's a triple agent. I don't, mm -hmm. Are we allowed to say that, that someone's a triple agent? Is that a thing? Does that just make you a single agent? I don't know. Um, I don't know. She double crossed the people she was double crossing someone else for. Um, yes. Anyway, that's very heady. But the point is, is that she's ratting them out, but also lying when she's ratting out about who's involved. So there's a kernel of truth there. Everyone's all the activists are on the same page. And the film is is ultimately about like these activists uniting under a singular cause and doing something that they view as effective. And there are consequences for that. And you see some of those consequences in terms of Theo and, and Sochi being arrested. We don't really know exactly what their punishment, you know, in quotes, that's not what the film is not concerned about what their punishment is for that. But you see that outcome. And I think from a, a narrative cohesion standpoint, I think it works. And I think that it's compelling. Um, whether you think that is a real, like sort of like what you were saying with the fight, like Logan finding Sean in the bookstore or whatever, like that's not mm -hmm. realistic. Just sort of like the FBI looking at this and being like, hmm, these three women, that's it. I don't know about that. Like that's not realistic, yeah, but, but I found it compelling. I found the story compelling though. Yeah. And the thing is, you know, even if they do suspect it, you know, the point is they can't prove it. Right. And sure. they have a, you know, they have two people who are come, three people who are coming forward and saying, yeah, we were the ones that did this. Here's how we did it. Yada, yada, yada. You know, they, well, two, they two have people their, coming forward and one person who was story. like undercover or whatever. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they have their explanation basically of, of how it all went down. But yeah, um, true. So even even if they do suspect it, they can't prove it, and that was that was the plan, right? Is that everyone else is going to get off scot free, um, and just the two of them are going to go down for it? Um, did you did you think it was weird that they paid? Um, yes, paid uh, Rowan for her information, like because the whole point of this, right, is like she is doing it to get out of more serious punishment for for going to jail basically for you know yeah i didn't i didn't understand the, the whole I yeah i didn't understand the payment part of it but to be fair um what they asked her to ultimately do was in incredibly dangerous so i don't know maybe it made sense yeah, yeah i guess that, i guess that's that's fair maybe that's the explanation but scott last point you know again we've talked a little bit about the you know political messaging of this movie whatever sure. you know we may feel it it, it is um you know talk a little bit more maybe about what you were kind of saying in the intro that um this movie probably doesn't go go as far as to say that we should all go out and blow up pipelines but it obviously is taking a stand for something and being uncompromising in the way that it's doing that um, definitely other thoughts yeah I, I look i think as you have pointed out as well the the film's moral compass is is very clearly pointed in one direction. I don't, I, I think the film does stop short of saying we all need to go out and do this to affect a change. I think what it's saying and what it's presenting is 
a pretty compelling one-sided argument as why it might be worth considering whether this is something we should do. Not that like you need to all go out. It like I just go back to this point like it is not glorifying what these people are doing. It is saying that this is a this is crazy anxiety-inducing work that could get you killed that will certainly get you in trouble, get you arrested, get the FBI involved. And it's not they're telling you that it's going to have this massive impact and it's going to affect the people who are sort of most vulnerable who need cheaper fossil fuel energy supplies. It tells you that it doesn't necessarily show you that. It tells you that a lot. And so it's not it's not saying that at least I didn't read it as saying that this is like this is so clearly the right thing to do. But what it's saying is that here are the reasons why this group of people have chosen to do this. They care so strongly. They are willing to take these risks and willing to do this work. And is this something that's compelling to you? I think that I think it's the film is sort of posing a question for people to answer. And I think, frankly, the film, as compelling as it is, is not going to be strong enough to convince people they should go and do this thing. But I think it's it's asking a question, providing an answer and saying, how strongly do you feel about this? And if that's propaganda, then so be it, I guess. But I think that you're seeing like Michael almost blows him, like almost blows himself up in this film multiple times. And you see but we have a broken leg. Alicia breaks her leg. Well, that's exactly yeah. what I was going to go. Alicia breaks her leg in, in this. And in addition to the fact that she's pretty conflicted, like it's it. I feel I mean, short of explicitly saying that she's only there because of Theo, like she doesn't seem as invested in this cause as everyone else in the group and is there because she's deeply concerned about Theo. And I yeah. think that sort of like the moral questioning of whether this is right or not really sits on her character. Maybe there could have been a little bit more juice injected into that if it was trying to create a two-sided argument or a two-sided narrative more strongly. The film is not interested in doing that, but the fact that they have her character there, I think, is sort of evidence that they're not solely obsessed with this notion of this is so clearly the right thing to do, no, no, no question. And I think that her presence there sort of confirms that it's complicated, right? It's super complicated and not everyone is going to be into it. But yeah, th there are consequences to what's going on. There are risks that people are taking. And the question is, do you think it's serious enough to do it? So that's sort of where I fall in the film. I, I understand why people would say that this is propaganda. I just, I'm, I feel like that's almost a surface reaction to what the politics look like of the film rather than the film itself. Because the politics are pretty intense on this film. If someone said that this is like the equivalent of I don't know, some like right wing Trump documentary propaganda. Like, I don't know if I would agree with that, but I kind of know what they're saying. Like, I kind of understand what they're saying. Mm. If that makes sense. I just think that this is sort of deciding to operate more on the level than I think some of those other pieces of filmmaking do. Um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm maybe I'm biased in that. No. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Like you say, I think the movie is kind of just interested in. How 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 exactly did we get to a point where, you know, these people felt like this was the only thing that they could do to get people's attention about this issue? Yeah. Um, and in some ways, the most interesting characters for that reason, what you're describing, are Alicia and Sean. We haven't okay. really talked about Sean at all, but he's just sort of like we the person we kind of know least about in the film. He really only knows Sochi through this divestment campaign, who she convinces that like this is just simply not working and we have to do something. We have to take more drastic measures. And I feel like what you're, I'll let you finish, but I just feel like those characters in particular are, are prescient to what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Um, but yeah, yeah. It's a question of how, how did we get to this point where this seems like something that has to be done? And, you know, they do have conversations about like, well, is this even really going to going to fix anything? Right. And I think that that question there is still lingering at the end of the movie. Like, you know, OK, so they've blown up one pipeline. But look, look at the effort and look at the to your point, look at look at everything it costs them to 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 blow up this one pipeline. Right. What sort of global effect is that actually going to have in you know, disrupting the industry and slowing down the climate change that they're trying to combat. Um, is it even really going to matter? 
I think that question is is still there. Like it's it's great that you know they believe in this cause and um, that it is an important cause, um, and we sympathize with most of them because of again the the backstories they have, the passion that they have. Um, but I don't think this is necessarily a, you know, the heroes right off into the sunset at the end, they solved climate change. Like we're good yeah, now not because remotely. they blew up one pipeline in remote West Texas. Yeah. And it, and it, and to your point, exactly the effect it's going to have, it seems like even the people doing the work, even these eight people, well, some exceptions maybe here, but like the core group think that like the main effect is going to be raising gas prices yeah. on people. It's going to put pressure on these companies, but it's not going to ultimately hit the companies. The effect is going to be on people, everyday people, your average Joes who are already having a difficult time um, and who are already affected the most by climate change, frankly. So it's an interesting I think it, I think it is more more morally complex than some people might give it credit for. Sure. Yeah. What do you think about the explosion, Scott? Do you think it was a good explosion? I did actually, yeah. Yeah. I did too. I mean, you know, again, this the whole movie is building up to this explosion like so, you know. I've seen worse explosions in movies that cost a lot more than this. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what their budget was, but I would be willing to bet they spent a lot of it on that explosion, but uh, Sure. Yeah, it was good. Uh, all right, Scott, I think we can probably move into wrap up at this point for the film. What was your favorite scene or moment from how to blow up a pipeline? Yeah, it's probably when Michael and Sean are making making the making the explosive. And I don't know, I'm, maybe I'm just an absolute fiend for these kind of like you can like you're holding your breath, white knuckles on the armrest of your seat kind of situation. I mean, that is oh, as yeah. tense as it gets. Yeah, 100 percent. And. I just really sort of relished in that because I just think so much of this, you know, like 85% plus of this movie is that kind of tension. And that sort of is like sort of the peak tension that you feel in the moment. And yes, this is one of those sort of cliffhanger type moments that you were alluding to earlier in a cut to Michael's back. I think it was Michael's backstory that it cut to right when he nearly blows himself up. Maybe it was Sean's. Yeah. I'm not sure. No, no, I think um, you're right. But yeah, I so see he sort of, he does jostle this device and it does blow up and it sort of cuts to his backstory, you know, a bit of an eye roll for sure. But, you know, I just felt like that sort of tension release. Um, I thought it was pretty well weighted in that, in that sense. And it sort of, that is sort of the, um, a microcosm of the film, almost uh, a very tense build up to an explosion. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the whole movie just kind of flows together really well. It's hard to pick out scenes and, and moments for me, I guess. I mean, I do like the ending. I do like the voiceover with uh, sure. you know, the, the final message when the last sort of piece clicks into place there. And we see Sochi's, you know, message that she has pre-recorded. And we see, you know, again, what the, the ending and resolution of the plan was. Um, but like you said, I think, you know, the, the start of the movie is really efficient too, in the way that it, it sets up everyone. And, um, yeah, I, I don't have many, many complaints with how the story is told here. Uh, I think it's excellently done. Do you think uh, this is a, a sequel to the assistant Christine Froth Seth's person who like fled the, uh, <laughs> the interview with Harvey Weinstein and then goes out and blows up a pipeline in West Texas. What do you think? Um, might be a little bit of a stretch, sure. but um, yeah. I like I like where your head is at. I like where okay. your head is at. We'll play around with it. Let's put a score on it, Scott. What do you give this movie out of ten? Nine point Nine point three for me. I do think it's probably the strongest movie that I've seen this year. Um, and you know, it's it's definitely one I'm going to be thinking about and talking about more as the year goes on. I'm glad we got this opportunity to talk about it because I hope people will seek it out now. See if there's anywhere that they can see it um, in theaters while it's there for a short time. All right, Scott, that is our review of How to Blow Up a Pipeline. Again, excellent film. Please seek it out. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we have just a couple of news items to hit, uh, including uh, some casting news for a new sequel um, that is in the works, and we have a big-name director adapting a big-name novel that we'll tell you more about. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, a couple of news items to hit before we conclude today. Um, I'm going to throw it to you first. You wanted to talk about a sequel to a 90s movie, maybe not necessarily a, a movie that people were clamoring for a sequel to, never, certainly not one that I was necessarily clamoring for a sequel to, but the uh, casting news for the sequel definitely has me intrigued. Tell us more about it. Sure, yeah. So the film in question that you're talking about that you're surprised about there as a sequel to is a 1996 film. Is it is it fair to call it a disaster movie? I think we probably oh, yes. call that a disaster 100%, movie. Yeah. Called Twisters. I th- I think I saw Twister, it. I wanna... Singular. But yes. Okay, sorry. Yes, the original film was called Twister. That is true. Uh, this sequel is going to be called Twisters. Was there ever a sequel back in the day to this? Maybe a straight-to-video one, but not a theatrically released one. Yeah, I feel like I, I've seen Twister on TV. Like, it's got to be... I have to have seen that on, like, TNT or... It's a big-time TNT movie, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go- core TNT film, for sure. Um, definitely saw that younger. Don't remember anything about it. Um, is that where the guy drives, like, a weather truck into a tornado? I don't know. Is that that one? Is that something different? I haven't seen it, but I, I okay. would say that's probably something that happens. Bill Pullman, Helen Hunt, I believe Philip Seymour Hoffman's in it. Yeah. Wow, Philip Seymour Hoffman. That would have been even pre-Boogie Nights, wouldn't it? Or uh, Yeah, one year yeah. before. Directed by Jan DeBont, who also directed uh, Speed, of course. Yeah, Jan DeBont. Yep, absolutely. That would have been right after Speed? Right before Speed? After Speed was 94. Yeah. Yeah. Right, okay. So, yeah, and that, and that of course... Um, I think it was, I believe that was written by Michael Crichton. May he rest in peace. The original yes, one. Yes. So uh, very, you know, I don't know if it's acclaimed, but notable work from the 90s. For it sure. was certainly successful in the 90s. I'm sure it made quite yeah, a it lot. It made of half money. a billion dollars at the box office. Yeah. Now that you yeah. mentioned successful, I'm looking at it here. Uh, global, of course. But I think overall, just like kind of crazy, <laughs> that film made half a billion. Um, you know, successful. That's the point, right? Time. Like you had the director of Speed. You had Michael Crichton, you know, super famous writer. You had. I don't think it, you said Bill Pullman. I believe it was Bill Paxton was in that movie. Um, Classic mix up. They're the same person. It doesn't matter. Uh, Helen Hunt and, and Bill Paxton. And it was a massive hit. I, I mean, look, if Amblin is making this film for Universal, if Twisters, the sequel here, makes half a billion dollars at the box office, I think, you know, some, someone's going to do a flip uh, over at 30 Rock, I think. We will see eight more Twisters. <laughs> yeah, there will be many more Twisters in the air. For yes. sure. But I think the part that you said gets you interested is that is the casting news. But honestly, frankly, the director as well. I don't know if you saw this element of of the announcement, Scott. Daisy Edgar Jones might already I think might have already been announced to be in this film. I'm not sure we talked about it on the podcast. But Daisy Edgar Jones, of course, of normal people fame. But where the crowd had sing last year was a pretty successful film, uh, at least for a certain demographic. And she was also in a film called Fresh, which was a Sundance film that was acquired by was that I think that was Hulu acquired by Searchlight, but went direct to Hulu like a couple yes. months later. Yeah. So she's been in some stuff here and there. Hasn't really found her breakout hit to the even though Crawdads was I was going to say Crawdads is pretty successful, was a moderately like successful film, but not maybe the kind of film that would catapult her into a, a sort of yeah. next tier of stardom beyond normal people. So she is going to be in this film. Her co-star, and this is where the core of the announcement comes to play, is Glenn is going to be Glenn Powell, it seems like. Of course, Hangman from Top Gun Maverick. He was also co-starred with Jonathan Majors in Devotion last year. And further back, of course, we are a huge fan of him from his time working with Richard Linklater on Everybody Wants Some. He was in, he he is the star of one of my most anticipated films of this year, but will probably be next year in Hitman, which is Richard Linklater's next film but he's also going to be joining daisy edgar jones in this and they are going to be directed uh interesting pick i thought but lee isaac chung the director of minari is going to be directing (laughs) this film which is a very interesting choice i'm because it's amblin i assume it will be executive produced by steven spielberg i believe the original was also executive produced by steven spielberg so you know, I'm curious how much Spielberg ha- cares or has a say in any of this. But interesting that Lee Isaac Chung would be chosen as a director for this. I think that's really interesting. I don't know what direction that's going to go. Uh, Scott, from the title, we know there's going to be more than one twister in the film. So it's a real, uh, you know, interesting bit of casting announcement. It is exciting. I- on paper, I would not be interested in a twister sequel. Yeah. Um, but when you add these names to the paper and then, you know. Tell me Lee Isaac Chung is directing it. I'm going to be like, huh, interesting. Yeah, this feels like like a real sort of 
full-throated effort to bring back the disaster movie, right? Like, again, you're what you're talking about is in the 90s, they were really big. Oh, like, sure, yeah. Twister Huge. made $500 million. Independence Day, Armageddon, Deep Impact. Like, these were some of the biggest blockbuster movies in the 90s. Yeah. This is the um, 90s, but Day After Tomorrow, things like that. Yes, yeah. Um, but, yeah. now, I mean, of course, you still have Roland Emmerich doing his BS. We saw what if there was a last fall? year, but... Um, yeah. But, you know, again, that's just rolling the Like, you know what you're going to get with that. This feels like, hey, we're rolling the dice on something here, right? We've got Amblin, right? We've got, you know, a very esteemed production company with Steven Spielberg, you know, behind it in some capacity. We have two, you know, young, hip stars, ostensibly. Um, sure. And we have a director, right, coming off of, I believe he was Oscar nominated for Minari. Um either for director or for screenplay he definitely picked up at least one nomination i believe um at the oscars but um but yeah you know may maybe you know you could get a little sniffy and and say that this is in the same vein as you know barry jenkins doing the lion king or um chloe zhao doing eternal something like that um but um you know again there, i think there's some some reasons to suggest that hey maybe we're gonna try to like do a, a full-scale throwback to like mm -hmm old-fashioned big blockbusters that all you need to do is give us a tornado and some you know hot movie stars and that's sure. your movie right there pop off give us some good special effects yeah look this is definitely not the same as chloe shout directing internals <laughs> look maybe the movie is as much of a disaster as that film was but it doesn't feel quite the same sure but i mean again in terms of somebody who just you know coming off of a big moment for them Sure. Um, like indie director coming off a big moment for them going to do like this big blockbuster thing. I mean, you know, it is a franchise movie. This is a franchise. Now the Twister franchise and not the same not as the, the same MCU. Level as the MCU. Of course it's not. Yeah, yeah, but just yeah. in the concept of it is the same. Um, yeah. But anyway, I think that I guess I, what where I will really draw the difference is that the creative control that I assume Lee Isaac Chung will have must be significantly greater than what Chloe Zhao and I would I assume Barry Jenkins will also have with these sort of like very storied, very sheltered franchises yeah. that are sort of shepherded by people who are not the directors of the film. Also, yeah. Lee Isaac Chung, you're right, on both counts, got nominated for Best best Director and Best Original Screenplay. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'm with you there. Like, he will probably have more creative control over this. At the end of the day, it's still a Twister sequel. Yeah, so, sure. like, you, you know what you know most of the movie is going to took a prize of um and so it's it's more just the idea of these directors not necessarily continuing along the path that they were on before their oscar recognition and like really saying no we're going big or we're going home um but yeah i mean very in, intriguing combination of, of people and, and ideas and stuff going on there so um definitely one to monitor uh, Scott, for my news item today, um, something else to monitor, uh, a, a big name director, I think it's safe to say she is at this point, for better or for worse, Olivia Wilde, sure. um, of course, Booksmart, we both loved, and then last year, the, you know, one of yeah. the most talked about movies of the year for all the wrong reasons, uh, sure. Don't Worry Darling, and all of the backstage drama that went on there. She's a big name she celebrity, was. if not a big name director. Yeah. For which she was, you know, the the instigator and the at the heart of it seems it seemed a bit toxic. Yeah, um, she, however, is turning her attention to television. At least uh, we know she has at least one or two other movies in the work. She has the gymnast movie that she's doing with I can't I forget who's starring in that, but um, sure she's doing a, a gymnastics movie. Um, that's, I think, her next project that she's working on. But down the line, she is also going to be working on um, a new TV series. Actually, a couple of couple of series, or I think they're combining them into one, combining a couple of books into one, Scott. But she is going to be adapting what I believe has been, you know, in the works, some sort of adaptation for it for quite a while, but it's never actually made it to made it to the small screen. But uh, Jennifer Egan's Pul Pulitzer Prize-winning novel. Uh, a visit from the goon squad um, is what she is going to be 
adapting. I believe this is going to be, yeah, this is going to be for, for A24 specifically. So you'd expect it's probably going to end up on HBO or Max, whatever they're going to be calling it at that point. But sorry, it's why, a collaboration. Why would it end up on HBO? Sorry. Well, I mean, that's the same thing as like Euphoria, right? Like that's like the A24 collaboration. I assume that. Was oh, I mean, I mean, like Beef is an A24 that. show that's on Netflix. So I, I don't, I don't okay. think they have a con like a pact with any specific streamer. Okay, that's fair. But anyway, she's working on it with A24. It's going to go to some streaming platform. But she's going to be adapting this novel and, like I said, also this, the sequel, The Candy House, um, mm -hmm. which came out in 2022. Again, Visit for the Goon Squad was like early 2010s, I believe, when that came out. So it's it's been in the works and adaptation for quite a while. Um, I really loved that book, Scott, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Um, it's going to be an interesting adaptation. I do think in this case that a series is probably the right way to go because the way that the the book is laid out is like, it's almost like thir thir I think it's 13 different like short stories and they follow the same characters and like it is moving in a chronological fashion. Okay, it's not like Vantage Point. <laughs> no. Or whatever, no. Rashomon. Um, no, but they, but they are like, short stories like i don't really know how to describe it but that's that's what i would say but uh, it, se it seems like it would lend its well to a, a series like i'm saying like the, it, there are natural divisions in the story where you know these are your episodes so to speak um for the series but um you know obviously i have mixed feelings about this like i, I think it you know could be could be cool obviously i mean it's cool that they're they're adapting it they're bringing it to the the small screen it's cool that a24 is involved it's probably going to be, you know, a big project. It's probably going to attract some big cast members, I would think, because it is a Pulitzer Prize winning novel that a lot of people read. Olivia Wilde is, of course, the wild card, no pun intended, in all this. Um, you know, what what is going to be the fallout from all of the Don't Worry Darling stuff, right? Are, are actors still going to want to come and, and work with her? Like, are are the the cat the big name cast that she's presumably going to want for this and that A24 is going to want for this, are they going to want, going to want to come and work for Olivia Wilde, given what, what has happened in the last year with, with her behind the scenes? Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, of course, the cynic in me says if you throw them enough money at them, then of course they will. Um, but um, certainly... You know, putting all the backstage stuff aside, Don't Worry Darling was not a good movie. And, um, you know, she certainly has to be at fault for for some of that. Um, I, I definitely don't think she's a bad director or anything like that. Again, we love Booksmart and even Don't Worry Darling, I think, has some some flourishes of vision, at least. Um, but again, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that I have some reservations given what happened i think it, it would only be natural to have those reservations um but obviously i'm hoping it's good i'm rooting for it to be good i really like the book you know i think it could could make a great series it's been a long time since i read it but um you know i have been monitoring at least that there was some sort of adaptation for a while i'm very much into books that i like getting adapted I'm about to finish watching daisy jones and the six i think they did a great job with the adaptation of that Hopefully they do the same with this book. Scott, any thoughts on this? Yeah, look, I, I think that I'm not as familiar. I mean, I haven't read the book, so I'm not as familiar. Olivia Wilde, I think, burned a, burned a lot of cash cachet on Don't Worry Darling with me. And I think she's going to have to win that back. Now, whether she wins that back with this film Perfect, uh, which is the name of the film that is the gymnastics film in the 19, set in the 1996 Olympics with Carrie Strug. Is that her name? Strug? Yeah, Thomas and McKenzie, right? And Thomas and McKenzie is yeah. the person okay. who is cast to, to play to play the role. Um, I am just like reading some some news that like she may have she may no longer be the director on that movie because um, I think production got pushed back and she may have had other conflicts come up, aka they were worried about her and the Don't Worry Darling mess. Frankly, because I think this was news came out around the Don't Worry Darling drama that just didn't. It's unclear. It's not being reported by major trades, but it's like it looks like it might be like a we don't really know if this is still happening. But I think as of right now, she is still listed as the director of the film. And I guess we'll see what happens. But it sounds like Thomasine McKenzie and McKenna Grace, I believe, is also in it. Yeah. Who is. Um, gosh, what's her most famous thing? Probably probably playing the younger version of 
of Tanya and I, Tanya? Is that probably the most famous thing she's done? Yeah. Was she the one who was on Mad? No, that was Karen Chipka who was on Mad Men, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. McKenna Grace, like, she's played like young, the young version of somebody. Of a lot like, of, yeah. A bunch yeah, yeah. of different stuff, it feels like. That's like the niche she carved out for herself. But. Yeah. She's playing, I think she's like ma- the major supporting role, I guess, in that. Um, yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, I guess we'll see if that happens. But I think for me right now, I'm intrigued by it. I'm not familiar with the source material, so I don't have any particular passion about it. But if Olivia Wilde can sort of turn it around and sort of make good on the promise of Booksmart in her next project or two that she's working on that's not this TV show, then I'll be back on board. Now, I'm a little skeptical right now, though. Yeah, understandably so, I think. All right, Scott, that should do it for this episode of Some Like It, Scott. Uh, Where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton2013. And I am at Scarvy Dent on all platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Even if you can't support us over there, however, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And we hope you will join us for our next episode on which we'll be staying in the indie realm to reveal to review the surreal epic from director Ari Aster Bo is Afraid but until then for Scott Shelton I'm Scott Harvey we'll see you next time